We are studying David. This is lesson number two. Last week we talked about David's private anointing ceremony where he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. He had an unlikely beginning. He was actually out in the fields with the sheep when Samuel the prophet came to his father's house to anoint the next king. All his older brothers passed before Samuel as God rejected one after the other. He was looking at the heart. And David was called in from the fields, and he was the one. He was the one who who had a heart like God's, a man after God's own heart. And so David uh, had this unlikely beginning, and his value was assessed in different ways. People had different impressions of him, which is not surprising for someone so young as David. Uh, He had not been tested in the public eye, although we talked about last week, and we'll discuss it again, that privately, in solitude, he had been tested many times. But he had not been tested in the public eye, so people had different opinions about him. Uh, Samuel, for example, was not looking for a king like him. He was still looking for someone like King Saul, who had been a a failure, a moral failure, at least for Israel. Uh, He was looking for someone who looked presidential. And when he saw Eliab, Jesse's firstborn, he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And God said, I've rejected him. Don't look at his appearance. The Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. So Samuel made a mistake of looking at the appearance, and that's how he was sizing up David. Uh, At the end of chapter 16, we didn't talk about this last week, but uh, Saul's servants had an opinion of him. Whenever Saul was dealing with this evil spirit, which I think is probably a psychological problem, Uh, we might call it clinical depression or anxiety today, It was very fierce, and it had to do, it was combined with this awful temper and jealousy that was turned on David and even Saul's own son Jonathan later. But they sought out a musician as a way to remedy Saul's evil spirit, his bad temper. And the servants of Saul found David, and they said of him in 1 Samuel 16, verse 18, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who was skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. So quite a lot of qualifications for a musician back in those days. He didn't say a whole lot about his musical skill. It was more about his his ability in battle, his character, his speaking ability. They were basically lining up all the, the attributes that would make for a good king. And so I think it's interesting to see the first people to really recognize David's uh, abilities were the servants of Saul. Maybe they knew what to look for better than anybody else. Goliath, as we'll see tonight in 1 Samuel 17, saw nothing but a youth. That's in verse 42. Uh, We all know that Goliath sorely underestimated his challenger. That story is well known. But the Lord appreciated David for his spiritual qualities and saw him as a man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. 
So let's talk about chapter 17 tonight, and we're going to analyze this in terms of heroic faith. That's the name for tonight's lesson, lesson number two, heroic faith, from 1 Samuel chapter 17. We can talk about Goliath a little bit. This was a Philistine challenger, a Philistine champion, and for, what is it, 40 days he had come down into the valley between the Philistine camp and the Israelite camp to taunt Israel. And uh, you have to understand that the Philistine notion of uh, polytheism in those days, they believed that every nation had its own God. And so the battle really did not need to be wasted on armies, but basically if there was a representative who would come and fight a representative from the other nation, that would suffice to show which God is most powerful. And uh, Goliath was the champion of the Philistines, and he was looking for a champion of the Israelites who would meet him in battle so they could show that the Philistine God and the Philistine nation was most powerful and could control that area. And he would come down every day and say the following words that are recorded in 1 Samuel 17, 8 through 9. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Well, why wouldn't anybody come and challenge him? These were the people of God. I think we all know the answer to that. Goliath was a big guy. He was a fierce warrior. I doubt anybody had ever beaten him in battle. Usually if somebody is beaten, they don't live through the experience and so the fact that he was standing there alive and so bold, he had probably killed numerous people this way. And uh, none of the Israelite men wanted to be his next, his next um, challenger. And so we have this description of Goliath at the beginning of chapter 17. First of all, his height. I got a little graph here. We don't know how tall David was. We know the average Israelite soldier was probably about five foot eight in those days, shorter than the average male today, probably in America, but probably five foot eight. David might have been shorter than that, being a younger person. I don't think David was a little boy, but he certainly was a youth, and that was Goliath's assessment of him, that he was very young. So the tallest he might have been was five foot eight. And Goliath was something, if you do cubits to feet, the best of our ability to do that. It was something like nine foot six. So this is how they might have lined up. I was looking through a number of images for the presentation tonight, and some of them are kind of silly. You know, they have like a toddler facing a mythological giant 20 feet tall just to exaggerate the battle, but you really don't need to exaggerate it. The facts are impressive if you just look at them. Here are some more things. He wore a massive helmet, Goliath did. He had a huge suit of bronze armor. He had great bronze shin guards, a bronze javelin slung across his back. He carried a spear with an iron point that weighed nine pounds. And all of this stuff was very heavy, all of it made of bronze. Estimates have been around the neighborhood of 270 pounds just for the armor. He had a, a shield bearer that would go before him carrying his shield for him. And so really when David was facing off against Goliath, he was facing two men, not one. 
because you've got to take into account the shield bearer. So put together 270 pounds of armor, an opponent that's experienced and over nine feet tall, and you've got quite an intimidating character there. Uh, who would want to go against somebody like that? I doubt any of us would step forward. But the men of Israel, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And uh, we wouldn't either. Because this is real life. You know, we like to watch movies where we actually call it a David and Goliath situation. And we root for the underdog. And in the, win in the movies, the heroes win. But this isn't the movies. It's important to remember this is real life where heroes sometimes die. In fact, many times die. And the underdog is the underdog. He's not expected to win because he probably won't win. But there was something different about David. And really what made the difference was his faith. We all know how the battle ends, right? David chooses five smooth stones. He goes armed with only a slingshot. He does battle with Goliath. Strikes him in the forehead with a stone. Goliath falls dead. Cuts off his head. And wins the battle against the Philistines. The Israelites rout the Philistines, and for some time there's peace in Israel because of this great act of faith. We know that story. I'm not going to take the time tonight to detail the battle between David and Goliath. You've learned it since you were a child if you've been raised in the church and gone to Bible class. What I want to talk about is his faith because we can access this same faith today. What's really impressive about this story versus maybe some of the other amazing stories in the Bible is there's no miracle here. The most amazing part of the story is the size of the opponent. Nothing miraculous happens between David and Goliath. God doesn't intervene by bending the laws of nature in any way. The Thing that David had, his advantage, as explained by the text, was his faith. And we can tap into that same force today. And we have giants of all kinds. There's all kinds of spiritual applications here to the giants we face. The giant of temptation, the giant of discouragement, the giant of, of physical obstacles in life. You could go on and on and on. Each of you has one or two giants in your life that you're battling right now. And uh, I'm sure you deal with a lot of doubt. And you wonder where the Lord is. And you wonder how it's all going to work out. And you're bewildered and confused. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Are those personal giants and the faith needed to battle them successfully and win because we can win, and we have the same power David had. And so let's talk about it. It's heroic faith, and there's six characteristics that I want to share with you tonight. Here's the first one. We talked about this a little bit last week. I want to go over it again, just briefly. But heroic faith is born in solitude. Last week we talked about how David was in the fields with sheep whenever Samuel visited the house of Jesse. He'd spent a lot of time out in the fields. And it's in that place alone with the sheep that he learned responsibility and loyalty. 
He learned integrity. I mean, he was always left up to his own. And he did what was right, not because people were watching him, but he did what was right when nobody was looking. And that's when you really know a person's true character. He learned that out there in the fields. Something else that he learned is he learned a lot about God. He spent a lot of time out there working on his relationship with God. And this is when a lot of the Psalms were penned. We'll look at a couple of them. Turn over to Psalm 8. I read this last week, but I think it's undeniable that he penned this out in the fields. You see him gazing at the stars in this beautiful poem that he writes. And you have to think of him lying at night in the fields with the sheep, preparing for sleep. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And many, many other psalms like that show us what was going on in David's heart when he was out there alone in the fields with the sheep. He was praying. He was learning to play the lyre. He was learning these psalms and writing them and singing them in worship to God. And he communed with God. He wrote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, Psalm 23. He wrote Psalm 19 and and many, many other beautiful psalms that tap into nature. And this is something that we are getting away from. I talked about all the distractions in the devotional period tonight. We see the Lord finding time to to go out and pray during his ministry. He He would stop his ministry. Sometimes he had to force a stop and arrest the people and have them go away so that he could be alone and pray. If you think Jesus needed that, don't we? I mean, I think it's obvious that it's a discipline we're, we're missing in our lives and we wonder why we're so stressed out and feel so disconnected from God and have so much trouble praying. It's because we don't practice this. And this is something that, you know, all the great people of faith practiced, including Jesus. I want to share this quote with you from uh, F.B. Meyer. He wrote a great book on David. There is no shortcut to the life of faith, which is the all-vital condition of a holy and victorious life. We must have periods of lonely meditation and fellowship with God, that our souls should have their moments of uh, mountains of fellowship, their valleys of quiet rest, beneath the shadow of a great rock, their nights beneath the stars, when darkness has veiled the material and silenced the stir of human life and has opened the view of the infinite and eternal is as indispensable as that our bodies should have food. Our souls need nourishment just as our bodies do. 
You know, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. And many of us are dying a death by bread alone. We're just feeding our bodies. We're not feeding our souls. And that's why we don't have the kind of faith that made David succeed on this occasion. So heroic faith is born in solitude. Let's go to the, the second point here. Secondly, heroic faith is expressed by proper words. And I'm repeating again something we introduced last week. We were talking about David, but I think this is notable in the lead up to the battle against Goliath. The words reflect the heart. You know, Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 34 through 36, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can tell what's in a person's heart. You can see something about his faith by the words that he uses. And you can see that in David's attitude and in the attitude of the Israelite men. So let's look at 1 Samuel 17 and compare these words. So he steps forward and he starts asking some questions about this Philistine. And here's the men's words. 1 Samuel 17, 25. Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So note that they refer to Goliath as a man. And he's come to defy Israel. Goliath is a man, and they refer to themselves as Israel. Well, Israel's the name of the nation. Nothing wrong with that, but compare it to David's words that follow. David says this in verse 26. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. You see the difference? They call Goliath a man. David calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. He has no respect for this challenger at all. He's highlighting his pagan worship, his pagan religion, his lack of faith in the living God through this phrase, uncircumcised Philistine. And then... How does he refer to Israel? He does use the term Israel, but then he comes back to it and refers to himself and the other men as the armies of the living God. He's reminding them that there is one who will save them all behind this army. And they're not just like any other nation in the world. They're the armies of the living God. The faith is shown in the words. He's using the proper language. And there are all these studies that are done to see what comes first, the words or the thoughts. Well, I don't think there's any denying that your thoughts are shaped by the words that you use. If you use a lot of negative self-talk, that's going to really affect you psychologically. And uh, what you say is what you come to expect in life and what you come to expect in life is usually what happens. So you have to be very careful about the words that you use. If you find yourself complaining all the time or being negative all the time or only talking about problems and never saying positive things, never speaking blessings, always curses, it's really going to affect the outcome of your life. Use words of faith. Use words of blessing 
Stay away from the negativity and the complaining and the griping. Uh, now, there's more here because David has a conversation with his brother Eliab. You remember Eliab? He was the firstborn. And he doesn't like, you know, this is kind of sibling rivalry here. Some of us are familiar with this. And Eliab shows up in verse 28. Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left these few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And so you can see what's on Eliab's heart, a little jealousy there, and this disdain for his brother. And he can't just say, what'd you do with the sheep? He has to point out that it's just a few sheep. And he's really being ugly here, trying to discourage David. Now, this is where we have to be careful. When people use negative self-talk, that's one thing. But when they aim their negativity at you, that, that gets really hard, right? Because you can, you can allow that to affect you. You can start to believe it. But David's not going to let it creep into his heart. He's not going to let it in. Look at how he handles it. This is a good way to handle unfair criticism. David said, verse 29, What have I done now? He's heard this a lot growing up. So what is it now, Eliab? What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. That's what you've got to do sometimes, is just turn away to another person. Just turn away from it. Don't listen to it. You know it's not true. You know it's unfair. It's not going to help anything. So just turn away from it. And so David's a great example here of how to handle words. The words coming out of your own mouth and the words coming also out of other people's mouths. Be careful to control speech and don't respond in anger when people are using unfair words against you. Let's look at the next point here. Heroic faith is certain of the future. It has hope. It's certain of the future. This is very interesting here. Um, first of all, what's the most well-known definition of faith in the Bible? Can anybody tell me where it's found? Or maybe you can recite it. Hebrews 11.1. 11. 11. That's right. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It has to do with the future outlook. Hoped for. Hope is future in its outlook. And uh, we see David moving forward. We see progress. We see a reluctance to dwell on the past in David's behavior here. Look at uh, chapter 17, verses 34 and 35. He's talking to Saul now. And notice what he says. Your servant... That's how he referred to himself to Saul. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Now, how long ago had David been keeping sheep? Yeah, like a few seconds ago. <laughs> but not in his mind. He was done with that. He, he recognized this was a watershed moment in his life. He'd crossed the threshold 
And he was not a shepherd anymore. He used to keep sheep. He's looking forward. And David did this all the time. There's, there's a few psalms that uh, illustrate this. And uh, I love these examples because by the, he starts out the psalm talking about his problems. And by the end of the psalm, it's like God has already taken care of it. But that's impossible because we're just looking at a few minutes here. Uh, so let's look at a couple of these examples. Uh, psalm 13. Look at how this one begins. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And maybe you've engaged God in some pretty tense prayer. Maybe you've really vented to Him in prayer before. But have you ever said things like that? You've forgotten about me. How long are you going to hide your face from me? He's really letting a lot of ugly stuff out in prayer, which is a model of prayer for us to follow. God can absorb that as long as it's issued in faith. But look at him by the end of the psalm. Verse 5. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He's in the past tense now. Not only are the troubles in the past, but God's already delivered him from problems and he's moving on to the next thing. And he does this all the time. I'll give you another example. Go to Psalm 52. Look at how it begins. And this, by the way, is when he's running from Saul. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty men? The steadfast love of God endures all day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. So he is being pursued by evil men. His life is in danger. There's a lot of uncertainty there. But by verse 9, listen to what he says. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. You have already done it. That was David's attitude. He had so much certainty about the future because his hope was in God who can do all things. We can learn a lot from that. Let's go to the next one. Heroic faith is based on evidence. A lot of times we look at faith as a wishful thinking or belief in something that has no evidence, unquestioning belief in things we can't prove. And uh, this example in 1 Samuel 17 challenges that view of faith. Look at... Uh, Look at verse 34 through 37. Saul is talking with him, and Saul's a little concerned about this young man. He doesn't really want to watch the slaughter of this Israelite youth. So he's discouraging Saul, but David says to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. 
And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Now, he has done this time and time again. He's going to use a slingshot. He knows how to aim that thing and strike it true to the, the weak areas of whatever it is that he's fighting against. Whether it's a lion or a bear, he's killed many animals who have threatened his flocks. And so he knows he can do this. Yes, Goliath's nine foot six. But is he more fierce than a lion or a bear? You know, really when you look at this, I hesitate to put it this way, but it's not all that amazing what David was able to do. I mean, what's really amazing is that he was able to to kill lions and bears with a slingshot. If I had to choose between fighting a a bear or Goliath, I'm going to get killed by either one of them, but I'm going to pick Goliath over the bear, wouldn't you? I mean, I don't want to be mauled by a bear any day of the week. So what we see David saying here, he has a lot of faith in this because he is, God has helped him in the past with fiercer enemies than Goliath. We need to understand that faith is based on reality, based on true things, concrete experiences and most importantly the the word of god romans 10 17 faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of christ and the word is inspired it bears the marks of inspiration and so what god's word says we can truly believe and it's not fanciful to believe it it's not silly to believe it because the word of god has proven true time and time again right So, faith is based on evidence. Let's look at the next one. We're almost done here. We have two more. Heroic faith is immune to the distraction of doubt. Saul, he had doubts all the time. One misstep after another. You know, when they were looking for him in his coronation, they couldn't find him. Do you remember where he was? King Saul? He was hiding among the baggage. So he'd found a hiding place. He he'd even started to doubt whether he should even serve as king. He was reluctant. But David was very different. Whenever he was about to battle Goliath, Saul brings him his armor because David doesn't even have any armor. Right In verse 39, Saul is trying to get him to try this on. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not not tested them. So David put them off. This doubt that was so characteristic of Saul, you really don't find any trace of it in David. I don't need the armor. I'm going to win this battle. I'm going to win it like I did against the lion and bear. I'm going to win it with a slingshot. 
I'm not going to try these worldly tools that you rely on because I'm relying on God. Again, this is not foolishness. He's been proven, he's proven and tested these other methods before. But Saul is trying to force on him a different way, a worldly way. And David doesn't need it. He won't have anything to do with it. So we need to be careful about doubt. Faith is an assurance, a conviction, Hebrews 11.1. What was Jesus always saying to his disciples? O ye of little faith, why do you doubt? So we need to be careful about doubt. Let's go to the last point here. Know this, that even with faith, you're going to be tested. Heroic faith will be tested. In David's case, his faith was tested. And this was really, with Goliath, the easiest test for him. As we go through David's life, we're going to see some heavier tests. Tests of uh, loyalty, tests of relationships, tests of temptation. And he's going to fail sometimes. Just like we all fail. But he was never surprised that life could be difficult. You never see that in David. You never see him questioning God because he was tested. He always knew he'd be tested because faith has to be tested for it to exist. Here's something about faith. When it's just a theory, it's not faith. Faith has to be exercised for it to exist. Does that make sense? It, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a thing, like a material thing that you set on a shelf and just look at. It has to be worked into existence in the act. I think the best explanation of that is in 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's turn over there. 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's verses 6 and 7. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at that phrase, the tested genuineness of your faith. That's what is more precious than gold. That is what's going to result in the the glory and honor and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is what's going to save. There are all kinds of levels of faith, and the faith that saves is the tested faith. That when it's tested, it comes out genuine, like real precious metal, which is Peter's example here. You put it through the fire, it's going to come out pure, more refined, Your character, your faith is going to be refined by tests. It's not going to be burned up and go away. And David recognized this. He knew he was going to come out stronger after Goliath than he went in. And that's the way to look at challenges in your your life. Trials that you face. This is a test. And I wouldn't bring it on myself, but it's here. 
I'm not enjoying this. It's painful. I don't like it. But I do know this, that God can use it to make me stronger, make me better, make me depend on Him more. And that's how David viewed every test in his life. And he came through them. He failed, but he didn't give up. And he picked himself up and he depended on God more. And he emerged refined like gold. So those are six characteristics of heroic faith that I want to encourage you with tonight as we look at David getting started his confrontation with Goliath, his successful battle. There will be bigger giants that he'll have to face. But at least we can look at this one and see he started out well with a great victory. That's all I have for tonight. I appreciate your attention.